everybody. Welcome to the Peace Building Podcast. It's great to uh, be back here again with all of you. It's the dead of winter here in the United States, uh, middle of February, but the sound, sounds of spring are really popping up all over the place. The sun is warm, the birds are singing, which is nice, but it's also uh, kind of disturbing as it's two months early. So um, I don't know, my, my hunch is that nature is giving us a big wake up call. Um, another thing that is standing out to me these days is uh, the President of the United States' budget proposal, which is slashing basically all kinds of programs that meet people's basic needs and the needs of the environment and putting a lot more money into the military. Now, I, don't, I don't like getting too partisan on this podcast, but as someone who's interested in moving this planet to the next level and getting rid of our very anachronistic war system, it seems like a really bad idea because, you know, obviously the fundamentally frustrating, frustrated needs are what cause conflict. And when people can't need, get their needs met, they get upset. And, um, and also as does increase an increase of weaponry around the world. So, um, uh, whatever. Uh, another thing that stands out is the Me Too movement, which has been uh, extraordinary. Extraordinary in its massiveness and, and uh, spontaneousness and how much it took everybody by surprise. Um, I think to some degree, it's not just in the United States. It's, it, it is global, but it's definitely in the United States. Um, it, uh, I think, has been such a transformation um, and really been amazing how women have been coming together, really uh, ha- feeling the courage to stand up together um, and break the collusion of silence and um, with perpetrators and find the courage um, together to no longer protect offending men. So it's been really exciting to see. Um, it's certainly not the whole picture, but it is a huge beginning. So these themes, the weather, the president of the United States' proposed budget and the Me Too movement, I think are all connected and bring me to the focus of this episode of the Peace Building Podcast. I think peace is possible. I'm not the only, and it's not just a Pollyanna-ish hope, if you know that cultural reference, but one that's based on some serious work of some serious people. Uh, John Horgan uh, from episode 10, who wrote a book called The End of War. He's a scientific American writer. Bill Urey, uh, the Nobel nominee, Scylla Elworthy, who just wrote uh, a book called The Business Plan for Peace and will be a guest, um, a, a, an upcoming guest on the show very shortly, so stay tuned. All of these people, um, I think, feel that peace is in our grasp and uh, I would like to say within our lifetime. Uh, As I've said, I think the key to planetary peace is to empower women. And a key to doing that is to move beyond patriarchal models in family systems and in organizations, the two building blocks uh, of our world. Uh, Rianne Iser described in the last episode very elegantly the connection between cultures that have very authoritarian or patriarchal family cultures and those uh, that support militarism at the level of the state. I wanted to explore more about the connection between gender, 
organizational culture and building a more peaceful world. And I thought um, I knew no better person to do this than Professor Peter Hawkins. Professor Hawkins, or Peter, has been working with companies uh, for, for decades on leadership, culture, and change initiatives. He's based in the UK, is a leading expert in what he calls systemic team coaching, which I, uh, I got trained by him in, and uh, I think of as kind of the infrastructure for building collaboration in systems, very much like the training I received from uh, the Gestalt uh, Organization and Systems Design Program. I'm obviously going to put his amazing bio on the site so you can read more about him. But uh, the other reason, um, I had him on a more personal uh, note, is just to talk about, about him, the person, uh, in addition to his professional creds, which are incredible. But the other reason I wanted to talk to Peter uh, is um, because some of the things that he he talks about and does in his work that just really stood out to me. One is that he... Uh, he gets um, executive teams to be thinking uh, very intentionally uh, or holding their collective grandchildren as a stakeholder when they make decisions. He puts chairs, empty chairs out for them and or sometimes has them sit in those chairs to be thinking about the implications for their decisions on their collective grandchildren. Um, he does this, he asks leaders to be thinking about um, what their granddaughters or great granddaughters would be saying to them uh, about the impact of the decisions that they're making. And, um, and he does the same with, with invoking the stakeholder of the environment. Um, he likes to be thinking, as he says, forward, back, outside, in. Um, and his models are, are really brilliant and beautiful. So here are a few highlights to listen for in this episode. Peter will address, and very eloquently so, my question about whether there is a relationship between getting gender and diversity right inside organizations and creating a more harmonious world. Uh, and we'll say that indeed there is. He will address the idea that the era of heroic leadership is dead and gone, um, and that there's an urgent need um, we face to develop collective leadership and collaborative intelligence. He will talk about what men and women can do together as leaders in our places of work that, that we couldn't do apart and why this is so critically important for our organizations today. He will speak directly to men in organizations, whether they are leadership or rank and file, and provide valuable guidance about how to think and proceed in this Me Too era. He will address the need for companies to really rethink their career design model, which he says is designed for 20th century men, not 21st century human beings. He will address a question that always nags at me about how can companies get gender right and still stay competitive? In other words, not feel like they're doing the right thing, uh, but falling behind because of it in a hyper-competitive world. And lastly, he will talk poignantly about the impact of absentee fathers, either because of wars or work, and give us, as the sane global parent that he is, some profound words of wisdom to guide us as we go forward into this complex and exciting future. So, uh, 
Professor Hawkins, Peter, I think I can call you Peter. It's um, so grateful to your time, for your time. Uh, I think um, you bring a tremendous amount of creds to this topic, I think. Um, and the topic, you know, you, you bring a lot of wisdom, a lot of experience. Uh, and I know also, like, when I first met you, uh, the fact that, that you were talking about how interveners in organizations, leaders need to be thinking outside, forward, back, outside in, I think was your language. Um, and that you wanted people to really be thinking about uh, stakeholder, a much wider swath of stakeholders in, in, uh, in everything that they did. And that you invoked, I, I loved, I think, that you invoked your grandchildren right away as a stakeholder. Uh, to all your, you know, incredible uh, work with organizational systems and uh, and nature. So that those were two stakeholders that were standing out, as well as all the more obvious uh, people that you might expect inside an organizational system. And um, so anyway, and I, you know, I know you've been married for 40 years. You have five, I think, grandchildren um, and I think as uh, the professor, the pracademic that you've been, I think you call yourself that, you've had tremendous experience uh, in, I think, 25 countries or more with businesses, probably lots of Fortune 500 companies. Um, and uh, you're one of the greatest thinkers of, you know, systemic team coaching, which I think of as kind of the infrastructure, if you will, of building collaboration in systems. So. I wanted to get to it. You know I'm focused on gender here. Indeed. And, um, you know, gender is a, obviously a little touchy topic these days. Um, it's uh, It seems to be everywhere, too. It's just kind of, like, amazing to me. It seems to be on TV and, you know, newspapers. Every time you look around, there's something about the Me Too movement. And I know I was just talking to uh, a colleague and. Uh, about some work we might do in a um, largely blue collar organization, mostly very, it's a utility, lots of uh, very male dominated. And that how much men are, are, how much shaking, you know, quaking is happening among a lot of men worrying about the ax, Mike, where's the ax going to fall next? Some anger, irritation. So there's a lot of strong feelings, I think, among women, among men. And, um, and a lot of this is happening inside organizations and uh, with regard to work. So um, I wanted to just, you know, um, get right to it and uh, get your voice in here. And just as somebody who's such a scholar and practitioner of organizational culture, what does what do you think organizational culture has to do with um, and shifting an organizational culture has to do with becoming a more harmonious world. Why is this important, not just for the particular organization, but for the for the world that or in which the organization exists? Well, thank you, Susan. I think you've raised a number of very important and uh, significant inquiries. Um, I I have often said that uh, if the last 30 years of working with organizations and with leadership 
with leadership teams has been about the journey of helping us move from an over-focus on IQ and analytic intelligence to EQ and emotional intelligence. But the next 30 years are going to be more about how do we move from IQ to WeQ or from individual intelligence to collaborative and collective intelligence. And that's because I think we're moving into a phase where the challenges for any organization, small ones, large ones, governmental organizations, the not-for-profit or what I prefer to call the, the for-benefit organizations mm -hmm. and commercial organizations, all of them are facing the, the level of challenging complexity. You know, we talk about the VUCA world, the, the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world. But but I think this so kind of is a kind of a catchphrase underneath that. Every organization is having to deal with a level of complex change, but a level of interconnection. So we're in a hyper-connected world. And that means the days of, of, of heroic CEOs and heroic team leaders is dead and gone. <laughs> Today, we need collective leadership teams that are more than some of their parts where everybody in the team can represent the whole team, not just their function. And that's, that's requiring us to, to develop a, what I call WeQ or collaborative intelligence. <clears throat> and that means that, that if the last 30 years of diversity was about how do we get um, more women into the top leadership teams and more women to the boards, that's what I would call diversity um, zero, zero, 001. Yeah. Now let's get better representation. But for the next stage of diversity is about <clears throat> how do we utilize that diversity? How, how do we have diversity of, of, of gender, age, um, cultural background, and, and not just representation into the leadership team, but utilizing that diversity to create a, a collective intelligence that's that's far more than some of their parts. So to be very practical about that, you know, how many meetings do your listeners go into in, in their work or in their church or in a community organization that really generates thinking from the from the group and from the team that wasn't in other people's heads when they started? Yeah. yeah, how do you create that exponential potential, I call sometimes, of getting people together? And the, yeah, that one plus one doesn't equal two, it equals yeah. perhaps three or four. <laughs> yeah, so, sometimes I talk about the, the collaboration dividend. Okay. Uh -huh. That comes from the collaboration. Uh, D David Bohm, you know, who was a great nuclear physicist, at the end of his life, he uh, started to, to look at the whole area of, of how do we change cultures and, and that being absolutely critical given the challenges that are now facing the, the, the earth, the globe, the human species and the more than human world. And he was saying, you know, at essence, this was all about culture. And he had a little, nice phrase for this thing about collaborative intelligence. He said, in most of our meetings, we spend our time exchanging pre-cooked thoughts. Mm -hmm. you know, 
I tell you, Susan, what I know. You tell me what I know. And he says, thoughts are different from thinking. Thinking is always cooking together live, mm -hmm. coming up with new thinking, going to the edge of what we know. Yeah, it's so... Between us. Yeah. So, um, you know, I know uh, I had Dr. Rianne Eisler on this show uh, a little while ago, and she has, you know, she talks a lot about models of partnership and models of domination, and she uh, cites uh, some theoretical, you know, some theoretical work about how there's a correlation between what happens inside families and, for instance, more author cultures with more authoritarian families uh, also seem to be more militaristic at the level of the state. And I don't really know about that with organizations, but, you know, this is the Peace Building Podcast, and we are focusing on, uh, you know, systemic thinking. Um, do you think there's a relationship between, I mean, you were sort of talking about it, but do you think there's a relationship between getting, uh, developing that collaborative intelligence inside organizational systems and creating a more harmonious world? Uh, absolutely, because um, let, let me just take it on to another level. I, I, I wrote a, a blog uh, you mentioned I've been married for 40 years, but just before my 40th wedding anniversary. And I don't think this That's is That's a lot fun. of experience. <laughs> <laughs> That's I, a I, lot I, of hands-on experience. <laughs> I, I, I wrote a blog which said, partnerships are not created by partners, which was a very provocative title. And I was trying to link what happens in marriages to what happens in organizational mergers to what happens in leadership teams. And I was saying, look, we used to think that leadership teams would go away and create a vision and a mission for their organization. But actually that was thinking the wrong way around. That actually it's, it's the mission or vision that creates the team, not the team that creates the mission. Mm. If you like, the, the need is already out there in the world waiting for a leadership team to respond. Mm. And we know from all the research, and I've kind of reviewed all the best research on team effectiveness, that it's not having good relationships, and that's nice to have in a team, but that's not what makes a team really effective. What makes a team really effective is that they have a collective purpose that they've all bought into which they recognize they can only achieve through collaboration. And I think this is so important, whether we're doing peace work, mediation, uh, we're working at the, the, the intergovernmental level or any level, that actually what's really important is to always ask the question, what is it we can do together that we cannot do apart? What, what is the purpose to which we are both in service. And, and, and in a marriage, of course, that, that changes, you know, regularly. But when you first come together, the purpose might be that we have more uh, fun time when we're together than when we do when we're apart. Or, you know, we, we, we have, um, we feel great about ourselves and we excite each other's happiness. Um, then it might be, well, actually, we can live together better than when we can live apart. And then it might be having children together. And then they go up and leave home. We've got to find a new purpose. 
We do know that the best marriages are built on knowing what we can do together that we can't do apart. Mm -hmm. and, and, and many years ago, just related to peace, I was speaking on a panel at a conference and somebody said, it was a time of Bush and Blair. And they said, well, if you were working with that relationship, President Bush and Tony Blair, what, what would you say to them? And I paused for a while and I said, it's quite simple. I would say to the two of them, what is it that, that you two can uniquely do together that the world of tomorrow needs? Not that you're electorate yeah. one, but that the world of tomorrow needs. So and what I'm, are you getting to the topic of gender specifically? And I have been, I mean, I've been taking a stand in this world of, uh, this around this topic of peace building that actually empowering women is probably the most impactful peace building initiative that we can take. Um, what do you think? Because there are a lot of obstacles for women, even though there've been a lot of gains, a lot of obstacles created by women themselves, created by men, created by competition, for women really entering, really truly being partners with men in the in the workplace. Um, what what do you see that, that men and women as leaders together can do better together than they cut apart could do apart or without each other? Well, let, let, let me build from my last comment to that question, okay. because I think what I am saying is that we have to think triangulatedly, not dyadically. That in order to answer the question of, so um, I, I worked as a consultant to Relate, which is the British Marriage Guidance largest organization. And uh, what I learned from them is that when they work with, with couples, they say, we've always got three clients. You know, the, the wife who says, well, we've come along because he's so difficult. And the husband who says, well, we've come along because she told me to, or, you know, whatever that gets enacted. But the third client is the That's usually, usually the way it goes in therapy. You know? <laughs> yeah, that must be the way it goes. But the third client is the most important which is the relationship. So rather than asking, you know, what do you want from your husband or what do you want from your wife? We have to ask, what is it the relationship needs from the two of you? We have to think purpose back. So that notion of thinking in triangles, um, it's no good just getting women onto the top team or onto the board, but to ask the question, what can we do now that we've got that diversity here that we couldn't do before? Mm -hmm. It has to be purpose-driven, not representationally driven, if that makes sense. Which total real. sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. And, and, and what's the, you know, I, I talk about requisite diversity, which is... You mean statistics? Well, not just statistics, but, but linked to that. I say, you know, a, a leadership team. So when I work with a leadership team... I get them to do a lot of work about who is their work in service of, mm -hmm. who are the stakeholders, um, and how are we co-creating value and with all those stakeholders? And that may include investors, but also employees, customers, partner organizations, 
um, communities in which we operate, the more than human world, the environment. Um, and so you, you know, there's at least six basic stakeholder groups. And what is it we receive from each of those and what is it we give back? So I've chaired a couple of small companies and every year as the chairman, I've always done an annual report that reports what do we take from each of those groups, the environment, the employees, the communities where we operate, the investors, the customers, the partners, and what added value have we created for them? Mm -hmm. So that, that we, we were really accountable to all of those people. And by the way, I now add two other stakeholder groups. Mm. One is our collective grandchildren, because in any organization we are making decisions today that future generations will be living with. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that whole sense of um, what is it that we need, to, what's the legacy we need to, to leave the generations coming after us is so critical. You know, there was a great, um, I was on the platform with a Native American tribal leader who had this fantastic line. He said, we believe that true leadership is when you make a decision with the seven generations that come before you, mm -hmm. the seven generations that come after you, and all living beings that you share this moment in time with. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, we, we're not even in the foothills of leadership. Yeah, right. So, so the, I, I always now bring in and, and I do this literally sometimes when I'm working with boards, I will have empty chairs with the name of these stakeholders on them, the environment, the customer, the employee. And, and when there are difficult decisions to be made, I'll get non-executive directors to get out of their own chair and go and sit in the place of the grandchildren or the place of the customer, right. or the place of the investor. Right. So that we are actively, even if we haven't got the representation in the room, we've, we're bringing those stakeholder voices into, into the room. And when I talk about requisite variety, I always say, look, the, 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 the diver requisite diversity, we need the same mixture of diversity in the leadership team that are, our, that are there in our stakeholder world. Which means everybody, probably. I mean, I don't know. Uh, well, it means much greater diversity than is normally there. You know, I can remember going back to first working with organizations, 70, 1970s and 1980s, and working a lot with um, hospitals and social work. I was working with one large social work agency where where, where most of the, 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 the clients were women, right? And they were dealing with a lot with family issues and women, and, 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 and most of the staff were. And the hall of the top team were men, white, pale, male, grey men. <laughs> um, you know, and 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 I think um, I've done a lot of work with the the large professional services firms. You know, the PwCs and Ernst and Young and uh, Deloitte and KPMG, and 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 with each of those in the 1990s and the early part of the century, I have taken on confronting them about their their institutional uh, sexism and racism, yeah, um, which, of course, they get very defensive to. But I think it's my job as a, another pale-mouth grey man 
to confront not in just individual sexism and racism, but that which is institutionalized. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to which they are willfully blind. So, but coming on to your, so, so I think these issues are important. And I think what it does mean is that, um, and I'm acutely aware of this at the moment because my, my wife's writing a, a, a book on um, white privilege. Um, and, and, and how do we face up to the fact that, that as white people, we have created these labels for ethnic groups. We've created the divisions. We've created the boundaries in countries. And we have lived economically off the benefits of putting ourselves at the top of the, the pyramid. And that we still today are economically um, living off a, a legacy of, of, of white colonization, slavery, um, um, exploitation of, uh, uh, of other parts of the world. Yeah. And what she's saying is that, that actually, unless we could really face that, we are like a kind of addict who's still in denial. Mm -hmm. And I think the same is true for men in relationship to women. The work we have to do as men is to actually look at it, what, what's the, the hidden privilege of being a man, the hidden privilege of being white. So a simple exercise in, 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 the, um, in, in the race area is to get white people to write down have just because of the color of their skin. Sorry, uh, repeat that because you just somehow you just disappeared for a second. To have uh, people white say right, a simple right exercise. Right down, how many privileges they can think of? Ah, uh, yeah. That they they just have given to them because they're white. Right. Yeah. And most people struggle to get beyond three, four, five. You know, your listeners could try it as an exercise. Right. And then my wife will produce a list of 48, you know, which include things like you could be elected president of America without someone saying, haven't you done well, given that you're black? Right, right. right. Um, that you can read history books and recognise that most of the people in there are the same colour that you are. You know, there are, there are so many... Um, the privileges that come that, you know, in, in, in the UK, one of the, the, the places that middle class people take their families to are National Trust historic houses. And it doesn't take long to find out that 90% of those have been built off the proceeds of slavery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the same with men, you know, what is, what are the, how do we, become aware of, because as the dominant class, whether it's men or whether it's white people, so much of that privilege is hidden to you. It, it, you just take it for granted. So, Peter, what do you do with, so, you know, organizations obviously care a lot about competition. And you and I have spent a lot of time focusing on the benefits of collaboration and helping people understand that collaborative intelligence. And yet, you know, there's still this tension. Women bear children. 
they go to work, you know, lots of, so what do, what, how do organizations deal with that fundamental tension about how do they create a culture where women really can thrive and also bear children, raise children well, um, but also be on top teams, not uh, hurt their children as a result. I mean, obviously, we immediately get into the crunch bet- or the or the place between the systems between families and organizations the minute we ask this question. But you know, there's sort of a backdrop there for a lot of organizations. Is yeah, but you know, I'm this is a competitive world out there. How am I going to stay really competitive and make this happen? What's the advantage to me, really? So. Two levels of response, Susan. Um, the, the first one is that in di- dealing with diversity 001, we talk about how do we try and get more equality in terms of competing without looking at the fact it's how can they compete in a world defined by rules made for men. So your issue about, um, you know, many companies say, all right, you know, we'll make sure that, that, that we have equality of shortlists and interview procedures and political correctness. But, but we fail to look at that actually the whole career design model is designed for 20th century men, not 21st century diverse human beings. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. We have the same problem with that with millennials because in a lot of those big partner organizations, a lot of millennials are saying, but we don't want to be partner. That that no longer motivates us. (laughs) We want a different career structure. Mm -hmm. So then you have to start thinking. And and by the way, it's no longer a, a, a career structure that works for men because we design a career structure whereby people take more and more and more and more uh, responsibility and have more and more pressure and then suddenly stop. And what we know is that's the thing that most most creates a shortage of um, uh, the, the how long you live. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, we've been working with some organizations about how do we think totally different about designing the, the organizational career structure for one that, that embraces diversity. And, and, and even in the leadership, how, how do we have people do their, their peak responsibility in their 40s and 50s, but then not suddenly leave, but go into a period of eldership and mentoring? Right. So, so that we, we, we have a, a curve where, where you don't have to end sort of at your most, at the peak and you're most responsible and earning the most, but you can... You can have, because we know that's the best for longevity and we know it's the best for diversity. Or you can also let, for instance, women, I think often can sometimes peak later because they get slowed down. Yeah. And, yeah. Some, and, yeah. and some people need to have their career breaks in the middle because of family. And that, that applies to both genders, by right. the way. Right. Yeah. Right. They, they, they want to take time off for, for family involvement in the middle. You know, and I do recognize there's a biological difference, but but I think we need... We need to build in so much richer um, career path diversity. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Now the second, the second level I wanted to come to was the thing about competition. Mm-hmm. And I think at a, at a deeper philosophical level, 
we are in the West still stuck misunderstanding Darwin. <laughs> Say more. <laughs> the, when Darwin talked about the survival of the fittest, we it, all the writings of neo-Darwinism have taken that into we live in a competitive world and it's it's the you know it's the one who is uh, the, the most fit that, that wins out and the selfish gene and all that writing. But what Darwin was talking about is that the unit of survival is not the individual, is not the team, is not the organization, is not the tribe, is not the country. That is not the unit of survival, and therefore it's also not the unit of flourishing. So we still live in a world which believes that you have to compete to be, you know, the most attractive, the one earning the most, the one who gets the, the promotion, the one who's that's not so to talk about great leaders, excellent organizations, making America great again, or putting the great back into Great Britain, they're all bad thinking. They're nonsenses. Right. So what's the unit of survival? Because the unit of survival, and therefore the unit of flourishing, is always, but always, any one of those, the individual, the team, the family, the organization, in dynamic co-creation with its ecological niche. So you can't talk about a great team. You can only talk about a team that is co-creating value with and for all its stakeholders. Yeah. You can't save a species. That's nonsense as well. Otherwise, you end up with a couple of specimens in a zoo. All you can do is you can attend to the dynamic co-creation of species and their ecological niche. So really looking at the places of interdependence and and as you say, I think you are always coaching in between the spaces of interdependence, where the connections happen more than the... the, than yeah. the so, so, so it's a nonsense to go and coach a team. You have to coach a team's dynamic co-creation with all its stakeholders. You have, yeah. you have to coach the relationships, not the relator or the parties. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. You can't, you totally. can't consult to an organization. So I say with coaches, whether they're individual coaches, team coaches, or organizational consultants, don't make the client the person in front of you. Don't face them and ask them what they want from the consultant or the coach or the... No, go to shoulder to shoulder with them, ask them who they're there to serve and make their stakeholders your client and make them your partner. Now we're back to the triangle. We're back to the triangle of, of we can only be collaborative if there is something we're jointly in service of. And that ultimately... All of evolution is built on collaboration, not competition. Mm -hmm. But you know the, the whole individualistic, growth-addicted Western society of the last 200 years has built this whole way of understanding Darwin, which is false. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm paying attention to time, as we have to do in these podcasts, and I, I, wanted, I wanted your... Oh, there are a couple of questions that I have that interest me, and maybe I'll say them, and then you can respond in terms of what interests you the most. Um, you know, I'm interested uh, in your 
Um, I don't know exactly, you know, you've, you've had a lot of experience, you're more senior person, you know, so you've, you've seen a lot, you know, and you're a guy. Um, so I'm, the questions that interest me is sort of like the change that you have seen. And I also am interested in your perspective on what you think men need to be thinking about and what women need to do. And I know you've been talking about this, but um, but I think it's a different path for men and for women. Um, and um, so I'm I'm curious. Uh, be, uh, maybe maybe I'll go there. What do you, what do you think? What would be your advice to men, senior leaders, men in the workforce, blue collar folks? Uh, you know, what would be your your words of wisdom to them to be thinking about this? All the men that are, you know, quaking at the knees, uh, thinking, you know, or angry about the focus on women. Um, how, what, what can men, what do men need to do here? If you can talk about them as such a large group. Well, I was with a, let me start again at one level and then go to a deeper level. Um, I was with one of the big professional global service firms only last week. And um, there's a group of male partners I was working with, and it came up about some of the complaints they were having from the um, the executive assistants and the the, the the support staff. More female, or not necessarily? Mostly female. Okay. And uh, I used the opportunity to say to them. Because they were they were looking at what was the dialogue they needed to be having with that group, yeah, and um, and how they could have that dialogue in a different way. And I said, I hope, given what's happening at the moment in the whole sexual harassment debate, that you are confident that you're creating the conditions where if women are being sexually harassed in your organization, they will come and talk to you before they talk to the press and their lawyers. Because I'm telling you that that one of those big professional services firms within the next six months will find themselves all over the press for sexual harassment. Yeah? Yeah. And what I believe is it's no good just looking at yourself as an individual and looking, which is important as a man, to look at well, what have you done which has been exploitative and to face up to your own denial, not just point the fingers at the Harvey Weinsteins or you know, the, 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 the more obvious figures. But it's also important not to be a bystander. So one of the things we've learned about culture change is if, if uh, going back 30 years, if um, to try and change sexism in organisations. It wasn't the people telling the sexist jokes you needed to concentrate on. It was the people who were listening to them and feeling uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but doing nothing. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was saying to these men, how confident are you that if women are being sexually harassed, this will, and we know they are, we know they are, Yeah. We've all, all been we've all been acculturated very deeply for a long time. <laughs> so so actually every every 
leader of both genders has a responsibility to make sure that we're opening up the enabling conditions that people can talk about that immediately and internally, yeah, yeah, rather than sitting on it for twenty years and it going to the press, because then it then it all gets into demonization in certain individuals, carry it for the whole collective. But we know it's deeply embedded in the culture, um, and we all have a responsibility. And probably what goes along with that, and be equipped to support the person who's coming to talk to you, rather than shaming but, them, shutting them down scaring anything you know supporting them in a way that makes sense for the organization yeah um so that's that's at one level the, the, the other deeper level i think for for men is i i was my, my early experience um being involved in conferences um and alongside some very radical feminists and, and I was very struck. It was a, quite a turning point for me because I was noticing in this conference how a lot of the men were saying, oh, we agree with you. We, we, we feel put down as well. And, and the feminists would say, you know, rubbish, you know, you, you can't know what it's like to be, be me. Don't bandwagon on our issues. Oh, that was great. Other men would get up and say, oh, we, we agree with you. We think those men are awful as well, right? We would like to help you which is the classic drama triangle of you victim, um, them persecutors, me rescuer. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's a rubbish response as well. And then the the, the third one (laughs) trap that I saw myself and others falling into was, um, oh, well, perhaps you can help us. Perhaps you women can help us sort out some of our... And and this radical feminist just said, you know, you just blank blank off and sort yourselves out it's not our job you know um sex sexism is not a women's problem it's a men's problem well it's, racism is not the problem of black people it's the problem of white people mm-hmm. and ultimately you know white people and men have to do their work which is partly facing up to um, their inherited privilege, how they've been enculturated in an abusive system, and 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 to do to deal with their guilt and shame about that, and then to find so what is it we need to do to move on from that? And, I think that's and, so excellent. But I, I want to say one thing, which is that I I do think it's there are two sides here. I think it's women also have a lot to do here in the sense that you, you know we it's I I think in our in pre-talk, I was saying the Eleanor Roosevelt line, you know, no one, no one can, uh, what, what's her line? No one can disrespect you without your, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And there is a way in which I think women also need to, uh, you know, the Me Too, we can ride the Me Too wave, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of work that women need to do to really step into their leadership, to unlearn learned helplessness, to... Yeah. You know, there's a lot of ways that I think we still give our power away to men, and it's a deeper yeah. thing. And we have a different kind of power, and we, I think, need to really begin to understand what that is. Uh, not do things in what we call man mode, but do things in a different way that works for us and speaks to us, and that that's 
where I think organizations will get a real uplift from men and women working together when there is that genuine uh, people bringing their their real true gender intelligence to the game. Yes, and 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 in service of a joint purpose. Right, right. I keep going back to, but but I think what what I was speaking to was yes, of course women had a lot of work to do about their how they were allowing themselves to 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 stay in the inferior position or or or, or play victim or or collude or all those things but the work of men so so you know and i think women have done far more work there were far more um women's awareness groups than there were men's groups and i was involved first time robert Bly came to england to look at men's awareness and I thought his work because one of the things he was pointing out is that part of the problem for men is um, you know Robert Bly used to say when you see a group of angry young gang of violent adolescent men you've got a group that have had they're desperately trying to initiate themselves because there are no adult men around who are initiating them into malehood mm-hmm. and to a certain extent in the west we've had generations of absent fathering mm-hmm. partly because of the first and second world war so i can remember back going to to church in the 1950s and the church was full of first world war widows mm-hmm. very few elderly men around mm-hmm. yeah my my many people of my generation didn't have grandfathers. So we've got that whole legacy of, of, of men who went off to war and then men who got caught up in the corporate existence and were never around at home. Mm-hmm. And then men who did not stay and do fathering. You know, I've been so, it's so moving what you're saying, Peter. And I, I've so noticed uh, how critical fathers are to women to their girls. Uh, and I think this has been documented, but I've just noticed it in my own experience. I noticed it with the senior leaders and women leaders in Afghanistan, the ones who told me about their fathers that were really behind them and the ones whose fathers were not. Uh, I've noticed it in many, many different sectors that a lot, and I think it, that women, women leaders who excel often have a father behind them that is really been encouraging them, deeply encouraging them. Um, so, think, yeah. deep encouraging them to find their difference and their uniqueness, mm-hmm. because there are also very powerful father figures who who are involved their daughters. But somewhere, the, the daughter then is never able to leave the father, because part of the father's role is not only to deeply encourage them, but 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 to encourage them to leave and go off and be different. You are so perceptive. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I uh, so we're 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 pretty much at our witching hour, and I wanted to see if there were any punctuation marks that you wanted to put on this conversation, or things you you know if you want to say anything about your new book, which is really sounds exciting, or however you want to conclude. This has been a super interesting conversation, and I I really thank you for it. Um, so I don't know, words of wisdom, well, parting words. The last I'd end with two two lines. One would be from Gregory Bateson who says the biggest challenge we have in the world is to change the way we're thinking because the, you know, the, whether it's the gender issues, the peace issues, the migration issues, 
the world population issues, or the even bigger challenges of climate change. The only way we're going to solve climate change is by changing what's happening both between our ears, but also it's not shifting just our mindset between our ears, but shifting what's happening between our noses, mm -hmm. <laughs> how we connect with each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think one of the great things we can all think all the time is, in any action we take, is how would I explain this to my granddaughter in 30 years time when she turns to me and says you know in this period of of, of, of hyper challenge and hyper connection what were you doing to leave a better world for us mm -hmm. so all I'd say to all the all, all, all your listeners is um, just remember that in whatever we're doing our collective grandchildren are relying on us mm -hmm. and they're the ones we're most accountable to Beautiful. It's a lovely place to stop. Thank you uh, so much, Peter. Really, I, it's just a lot of depth to what you said and a lot of wisdom, and I have learned a lot, so I really appreciate your time. Well, it's been great having this dialogue with you. Thank you, Susan. So thanks again for listening to the Peace Building Podcast. Uh, I'm not sure when Peter's new book will appear in bookstores, but be sure to look for it and uh, hopefully we'll know about it and let you know. It's called WeQ, The Urgent Need for Developing Collaborative Intelligence. Um, also want to give a shout out to two people who have been really helping me behind the scenes. One uh, from the beginning, Scott Grunberg, who uh, provides both uh, sound editing and uh, direction on the podcast, um, hailing from Portland, Maine, really, really helpful to, to uh, me and this whole endeavor. And then a new person, Stephen Gray uh, from New Zealand, who is a really talented guy from, um, from the peace building field, who uh, just has appeared and has been really helpful. We've been collaborating together and really having a good time doing that. So stay tuned for some upcoming episodes. I'm going to be uh, interviewing Joe Washington, who spent years at the UN peacekeeping mission uh, in South Sudan. And um, that should be a super interesting uh, conversation. And then Scylla Elworthy, who has written a book recently uh, called The Business Plan for Peace and is um, a um, really amazing scholar um, and can really provide incredible guidance, I think, to us about this, this whole topic. Uh, I believe she's also a Nobel nominee. So stay tuned for those episodes and look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for joining us.